Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking shipping and logistics, primarily focused on the dry bulk world, industrial metals, agricultural products, and many of those things that are going into the energy transition. Are we over the COVID hangover after stellar years in freight? Where do prices stand today and what are the market dynamics? What's going on in inland logistics? And what's the big picture on the challenges and opportunities that face the sector? Our guest is Anton Posner. Anton is the CEO of Mercury Group, an industrial commodity supply chain management and logistics firm. I also want to note that we have an upcoming HC Insider podcast live event this time on September the 14th in central London. Hosted by Onyx Capital Group, we're discussing the future of oil derivatives and who really prices oil today. The panel consists of myself moderating, Greg Newman, CEO of Onyx Capital Group, Savas Manousos, former head of trading at SEPSA, and former guests Kurt Chapman and Tor Svelland, founder and CEO of Svelland Capital. The event is free, but invitation only, and spaces are limited. So if you have interest in coming along and seeing the panel, please do email me or reach out via LinkedIn. If not, you'll be able to hear the panel discussion on a future episode of the podcast. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. Please also feel free to email me if there are subjects and content that you want covered or you have a particular guest in mind. And finally, as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Anton, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Really great to be here and uh, to join. Been looking forward to doing uh, doing HC Insider podcast uh, for a while. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really excited to be here. Excellent. So we should set the scene. We're, we're talking essentially commodity logistics, both inland and and global freight as well, or ocean going, I should say, and primarily focused on in, industrial commodities, but uh, lots of things flow into that. Let's start, I guess, where I left off the last uh, logistics focus podcast I did about a year and a bit ago. And we were very much in the sort of post-COVID hangover with snarled ports, uh, extraordinary freight rates, and some question over whether this was structural and systemic or whether it was going to uh, subside eventually. Can you kind of, I guess, set the scene since COVID and kind of where we are today? Right. As you said, certainly during the pandemic, the the supply chain issues in many aspects and many many uh, areas of the global logistics and transportation supply chain infrastructure experienced extreme duress right during uh, the pandemic. That when things started to come back and swing back towards um, import on a large scale into North America, for example, we saw massive delays, ships coming into uh, ports uh, throughout the country uh, and throughout U.S. and Canada waiting um, for sometimes weeks and months for berths, um, huge delays waiting for empty rail cars to be available, massive truck uh, shortages that drove up the spot and contract uh, truck freight market. So we saw really a, a large scale chaos and uh, in particularly in the commodity supply chain and industrial commodity supply chain that we work we work in things have moved back towards normal at this point so we're seeing 
we're kind of back to where we were pre-pandemic in in a lot of the areas uh, in the supply chain. Yeah. As you as you look back at that, you know, sort of the, you know, the post-game analysis, what was the major factors contributing that? I mean, a lot of it it seemed even at the time was down. Obviously, it was down to labour, and then mm. also a sudden onrush of demand. You know, was there anything more structural there? Where are we at with sort of unions? Where are we at with labour around the world? Can you sort of help us understand kind of why we're we're heading back towards normality and if there are any bits that aren't going to go back. And certainly there were different factors uh, that contributed in different uh, parts of the supply chain, but let's take the one that was the most most talked about, right, was the port delays uh, at uh, West Coast ports, right? There was a continual tracking of how many ships were waiting at anchor, for example, off LA Long Beach uh, for easier container ships waiting to uh, waiting to discharge. You know, the infrastructure situation is not easily and readily expandable, right? At a port like uh, like Los Angeles Long Beach, they have only a certain amount of berths with cranes that can actually physically handle these container ships. So while you could add more labor to the situation, it doesn't mean that there's going to be more container cranes than instantaneously showing up. So this was a big factor as consumer demand came back really strongly, right? As we were 21, uh, 2021 into 2022, we saw these massive delays with an inability to uh, to really adjust what the infrastructure to deal with it, right? So you had a situation where container lines just kept adding more ships calling the same ports onto these services and container freight was demand was was uh, so significant uh, on the Pacific market, for example. So you had container freight for a, let's say a twenty foot container going from China to California pre chaos was maybe in the thousand dollar range or less. You know, then you you saw upwards of thirty thousand dollars per container just to secure space on a container ship going, and that still meant that probably the container was going to sit on a ship off the coast of California for a month or two waiting for a berth at that point. So a big contributing factor in that particular case was the, was the container lines not spreading their business out to other smaller workable ports and concentrating on these uh, large large ports that, uh, that ended up with pretty significant congestion. So mm. that's now changed and there's been some movement towards diversifying their their portfolio yeah we're going to go through sort of obviously containers uh, which some astonishing numbers made last year yeah. obviously dry bulk as well and, and the inland piece and then come mm-hmm. back to kind of the future macro picture is mm-hmm. just just staying sort of on that covid hangover piece it seems to me that when you get large periods of inflation, prices are never going to, at least in the, the medium term, they never really return to where they were. Are we? Is there still a post-COVID premium, you know, especially when you factor in increased labor costs, inflation and so forth that's happened since? In transportation markets, in some, some of the transportation markets, um, rail freight, for example, is continuously moved upward, right, in, in uh, several percentage points on average. I'd say uh, what we're seeing on uh, on rail freight. However, in other areas, um, ocean freight, both containerized and dry bulk, break bulk, has significantly dropped over the past several months. So, railroads are, are more monopolistic, 
right? Less of a liquid market there. So it's more opportunity for railroads to lock in increases that they've gained over the past few years. Whereas the markets where there's more competition, truck freight in North America or bulk ocean freight, container ocean freight, containerized ocean freight, where there's you know more liquid markets, those those have suffered the most in, in terms of reversing any of the gains that they uh, that they had. Barge freight on the Mississippi River system, uh, for the most part, has uh, has moved uh, upwards um, and locked in some of the increases. Uh, I would say that were gained over the um, pandemic uh, craze, but the railroads really have been able to take most advantage of uh, per- more permanent increases. Yeah, yeah, and obviously this is the story that will unfold. We're telling here is also one of the typical shipping cycle where lots of more ships have now entered the entered circulation, the fleet, mm-hmm. unlike perhaps on on rail stock. But okay, let's turn out. Let's turn to right. ocean freight, and in particular, obviously dry bulk. Before we start, mm-hmm. sort of throwing various terminology around, can you just help us? What you know, what ships are involved in dry bulk? What are sort of the major routes? Just help set the scene for that for 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 those of us who aren't particularly familiar with some of these things. Yeah, sure. And uh, we we differentiate, you know, tend to differentiate between the terms dry bulk and break bulk. And to help uh, set the scene for that, break bulk uh, is typically uh, is coils of steel, uh, bundles of copper cathodes, aluminum ingots, uh, super sacks of minerals, something that you could typically count. If you're looking at it, you can count how many pieces, how many bundles, how many sacks are there. And that's that's what we typically call break bulk. And dry bulk is materials that are measured in tons that you can't count, like iron ore, coal, grains, right, fertilizer, things like that, where we where we're talking about tons rather than pieces when we're when we're dealing with a count. So um, so just to set the stage right on the two the differentiation, break bulk, uh, the steel and metals and super sack and pallets and so forth are typically moving on handy size uh, vessels, small, and sometimes smaller vessels. These are geared ships, let's say you know, 30,000, 40,000 dead weight ton carrying capacity, dead weight carrying capacity, geared ships with cranes uh, on them that are used for handling the cargo on and off the ship. It's your typical uh, ships that are involved in break bulk trade for steel and metals, for example. And then as you start getting into the larger size ship, uh, Supermax, Panamax, Cape size vessels, these are much larger vessels that are engaged in the dry bulk trade and they're they're carrying uh, coal and iron ore and grains and uh, other bauxite, alumina in bulk and so forth, other raw materials. Cape size vessels can range from baby capes that are in the 90 to a, let's say 110,000 metric ton carrying capacity size upwards of uh, large capes that uh, can move like 150, 170,000 tons uh, at a time. Uh, and those are typically carrying uh, iron ore, coal, large volume mining commodities that are going into, uh, and they t- a big trade for the Cape size vessels would be, say, iron ore from Brazil to China, feeding into the steel mills in China. Sliding back down to the handy size vessels and break bulk uh, shipments, those for steel and metals, you see a lot of those on trades coming out of the Far East, for example, carrying steel plate from Korea into New Orleans or carrying uh, uh, steel slabs up from Brazil into California for California steel industries or things like that. Mm. That's your typical, you know, break bulk vessels. And of course, these break bulk ships are trading all over the world and different trades with the uh, metal steel and other break bulk type commodities. 
for goods. That's fantastic. And then how before we talk about sort of where the market's been and where it is today yeah. and heading forwards yeah. for, for the dry bulk side, what is the market structure itself? Are, are, do the larger producers own their own vessels? Do these all sit in managed yeah. pools, you know, and, and chartered out? Like, just how does that all, how does the market work? Sure. One of the guys from our uh, Ocean Freight team could talk far more in detail than I can on this topic, but I'll give you a little bit of an overview for the audience here. The market consists of players of various sizes and ship owner ship owners. So they'll have actual ship owners, companies that actually own their own ships. Then you have uh, ship operators, companies that op that uh, don't own the ships but time charter them in. Like basically, that's a time charter is a long-term or short-term lease of a vessel on a daily rate. And then those companies, those ship operators operate those ships as if they're the ship owner. And then you have the mi- companies that mix both. Like, let's take like the world's largest Oldendorf carriers, right? Uh, Hamburg and Lübeck, uh, Germany-based Oldendorf carriers are operating about um, 700 ships in various uh, sizes from Cape size down to Handys. And out of those 700 ships that they're operating, they own maybe about 100 of those ships is what they typically say when they give an introduction to Oldendorf and have about 600 others that are chartered in and being operated by Oldendorf. Sometimes they'll, if they're on long-term time charter to a, to a ship operator like Oldendorf, they may change the ship's name and make it like the Helda Oldendorf or something like that. Or sometimes if it's just being if Oldendorf is just chartering a ship in for a single voyage or a shorter amount of time, they won't uh, bother changing the name and not doing something like that. But that's a good example of what you see in the market. And of course, then you have many other ship owners and operators throughout the world, some that just own a couple of ships that uh, charter their ships into pools or want to just own a ship and then time charter it out to an operator they don't want to get involved in in trying to piece together parcels or chasing after cargo they want to you know these owners want to own a ship and uh, charge a daily higher rate for it and sometimes not even crew the ship they may bear but what they call bareboat charter it to a ship uh, operator who will then crew the ship and operate it and pay for fuel bunkers and, and so forth and actually manage the ship. So you have a lot of different types of players in that market, but it's a very liquid market. So it lends itself to to needing uh, expertise to really cover the entire market and, and find the right ship owners that uh, that fit the particular piece of business. Hmm. And and also it's a I guess a hedgeable market in the sense you've got the freight forward agreements contracts right. that are now available and, and thriving in this space. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. FFA's forward freight agreements traded and then <laughs> certainly <laughs> got that wrong. Yeah, it's okay. You were pretty close. <laughs> no, who knows? FFAs are uh, you know, very uh, can be a mystery, right? It's not something that a lot of people know about that are actively even involved in working freight uh, every day, right? But these uh, forward freight agreements, the FFA is traded on the Baltic Exchange. I'm no expert uh, in in FFA, so take it for what it's worth, right? But that's a method, uh, just like any derivatives product, right? It's a product that can be used to hedge freight for a long-term freight book. Now, you know, take a, you know, a trader, an aluminum trader that's looking to purchase a couple of spot cargoes of aluminum out of coming out of London Metal Exchange warehouses in Corkulang, Malaysia, and move to uh, New Orleans to feed into the Midwest uh, premium. 
they're not going and diving into the FFA market to hedge that freight, right? They're, they're booking that freight on a spot basis. They've locked in the ocean freight. They know what it's going to be. They, they know where their margin's going to be on a particular trade. But the FFA has come into play when, you know, let's say you're a um, you know, producer of, uh, let's say, biomass, right? Large scale wood pellet production going into European uh, power, power uh, production. And you have uh, you need to go into a 10 year offtake agreement with a European energy uh, consumer. And that's the, you know, that's the type of trade where you may want to hedge the freight so that you have some hedge on it on your freight exposure for that long term contract. Not necessarily going to be able to lock in that ocean freight uh, for that kind of period of time with uh, with ship owners. So that that's that's a kind of trade where FFAs come, can come into play. I'm sure FFA brokers out there uh, will would would want to have other things to say about what, the usefulness of those contracts too. So I'll leave it to their expertise to comment at some point when you do the FFA show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Please write in. Okay, so so thanks for that. I think that really nicely sets the scene. And it's not actually something we've discussed in detail on this podcast either. So it's great to kind of get that yeah. dry bulk view. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so where where was the market and where is the market today and, and kind of where is it heading? This now talking about the break bulk and bulk uh, freight in this case, seeing a fairly flat market, uh, the the there is really not no contango on the uh, on the futures on the derivatives at this point. Give you an idea, right? We're seeing um, handy sized vessels trading ten thousand dollars a day or or less at this point for time charters on these sized vessels, or even some of the larger vessels are in the same same kind of range. Whereas, uh, you know, rewind back six to 12 months ago in that period, we were seeing these same ships uh, go for $35,000 a day and upwards $40,000 a day, the height of the market, right? So those kind of daily, what we call higher numbers, daily higher is the, the cost per day for the, for the ship to be on charter or lease, right? Um, those numbers then translate into detention and demurrage charges that are that are put into a charter party into a freight contract, right? So, if you're delaying, if that ship is sitting at anchor with steel in the Philadelphia area for two months, waiting for a berth, like there was some ships waiting waiting extreme amount of time, you know, to do that, you're talking about uh, at the height of the market that was costing somebody. Thirty-five, forty thousand dollars a day to have that ship set at anchor at that point. So now where we're at, we're down uh, the, the dry bulk market for the handy size and Panamax and Cape size vessels are all down that ten thousand dollar or sub ten thousand dollar a day range. And you got uh, over the next few years about three hundred and fifty new ships coming out uh, from in shipyard orders coming out into the into the market. So not a great outlook in terms of uh, being a ship owner with a uh, new building coming out of the market. Uh, yeah. And and that's it, is it new builds that are really driving that? I mean, basically, I mean, how long does it take to build these ships? And I guess, is this sort of COVID stock coming online or stock? That it's always the, it's a drunken sailor principle, right? Uh, yeah, the market's way up. We've got to put, put ship orders in, put ship orders in. So a lot of this, a lot of these orders were done during, uh, you know, at the time when the market was, uh, was skyrocketing. There's a lot of orders going to be coming uh, coming out of the yards. So that means more opportunity for ship owners to scrap old ships, more inefficient, more fuel guzzling 
ships. We'll see more of that happening as uh, ships get retired that are that are not as efficient. But one of the major factors right now in the dry bulk market and what's depressing it is just the lack of uh, of a recovery of the expected recovery in China, right? So iron ore, metallurgical mm. coal, you know, still a, a massive overglut in housing in China. And, uh, you know, now the People's uh, Bank of China, right, starting to talk about potential stimulus there, um, just the recovery there, which is such a driver of the dry bulk market because of those raw materials is just not come to pass in any in the time anyone expected of course so that's a major factor is shipping considered sort of a leading indicator or a, a, a lagging indicator in these types of things? <laughs> that's a good that's a good question right i mean it depends on where you start to look right if you look at shipping you can you then start diving down into you know immediately pretty quickly into what china is consuming in terms of raw materials but if you're watching construction and raw material consumption in china it will lead you very quickly into a depressed freight market, right? If there's a lack of uh, steel making and metal smelting and so forth, like we're seeing. So, yeah, so it's kind of chicken, maybe chicken and the egg type thing there, right? Is it a leading indicator? Mm. It's leading if you start with it, I suppose, right? But <laughs> definitely, it's definitely a flag. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So one other uh, just final aspect, we're, we're going to move on to sort of some of the macro trends about deglobalization, which also is going to have yeah. an impact on friend shoring and all that piece. Mm-hmm. One of the major stories, obviously, of late last year or early this was scandals around missing, missing inventory and that piece. How, if anything, has that affected the markets? Has that sort of changed some of the compliance aspects? Is that sort of playing into these markets at all? It's a good point, right? I mean, there's been just one after another commodities, finance uh, scams, uh, and so forth, right? The biggest one over the past uh, few months has been the traffickers fake uh, nickel, I think a thousand and nineteen or so containers of uh, alleged nickel turned out to be rocks or steel discs of, of so forth, right? If so you're lucky, seeing this. If you were lucky, right, or, uh, or or the joke I made was Chuck E. Cheese tokens is another way to put it, right? But then someone corrected me and said, no, Anton, Chuck E. Cheese tokens actually have value. So you can't relate it exactly to what Trafficker got in the containers. But right now, I, would, I wouldn't say we're seeing that having an effect necessarily on the freight freight markets, but certainly having an effect on the trade finance markets. And this starts to you know, veer into an area where I'm certainly not an, not an expert, right? But um, I'm on the board of ITFA, International Trade and Forfeiting Association, which is a trade finance organization. And, and it's a big topic for us at ITFA, a big part of the conference that we, um, we held in Miami in May talking about this. But you've seen banks, major banks like uh, EBN AMRO, BNP Paribas, move out in significant ways of the commodity of the physical commodity finance space right uh, over the past few years and you have to wonder right how much of this fraud um, of which the traffic traffickers half a billion dollar you know problem is only one story of many right another massive one right of course was the green sill scandal with uh, gfg group liberty steel group and uh, credit swiss which is a you know complete mess, of course, you know, putting Credit Suisse in, a, in jeopardy and now uh, being acquired by UBS, right? So while I wouldn't relate it directly to the freight market, I mean, it certainly doesn't help to have more players withdrawing from uh, 
financing uh, physical commodity trade. The fraud issues have certainly had a major effect on uh, on banks and financiers that are financing physical commodity trade. We do collateral management uh, for several banks, right? It's part of part of uh, what we do as a Mercury Group to help mitigate the risk of commodity trade finance fraud. But uh, yeah, it's uh, there's going to be more stories in the future. Just just a matter of time. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, well, so so moving on to, to containers, and I, I guess we don't need to do the same deep dive as most people will be more familiar with that. But certainly at the FT conference in Lausanne in, in March, you know, it was the talk of the town and some incredible eye-watering profits made by container shippers in the wake of last year. Can you just give us some sense of where the market, where you already have, right, this $30,000 number to ship a container from China to L.A., and now down at three, mm-hmm. I guess it's the same story of new supply coming in. But can you, I mean, the profits were unbelievable last year, right? Yep, exactly. It was a good time to be an equity stakeholder in a container line, right? The profits were, were certainly, uh, uh, they, weren't, um, they weren't shy about reporting the profits, were they? <laughs> at the same time, no, at no. the same time, shippers were waiting. I mean, you put aside the cost, right? What the, what the cost was, you know, for, to pay $30,000 for one container to load on a ship in Hong Kong or Shanghai to get to Los Angeles just to secure space, right? So to do that and then to read, you know, read in the, in the market news simultaneously of the container lines reporting extreme profits was, uh, it was a little bit hard for, for people to swallow right at that point. And it certainly played into the narrative that the container lines were, um, you know, were gouging. Now, the, the container lines, of course, had uh, increased costs at this point. Those ships waiting off the coast of California uh, for a month and a half or two months to, to discharge, that comes at a pretty significant cost. So it's not it's not as if there weren't increased overhead cost for for the container lines at the same time that those uh, freight costs were skyrocketing but yeah it was uh how how well the container lines were getting the message across that that they weren't just gouging the, uh, the shipping market is a story that needs to that probably will still need to be told at some point yeah well I, you know i think Maersk, cma cgm you know, we're talking in the tens of billions of dollars profit. And I think the sector overall last year was sort of, you know, 300. I mean, it was, yeah, people can Google it. It's just a sort of, yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah the, the, that story hasn't sort of been told, but it's sort of fascinating. I mean, was that sort of just a, a unicorn year and, and things are back down to normal and, you know, and what's sort of driving that? Yeah, I I think it was a unicorn year, although just like uh, as I as I think we're going to start seeing in uh, weather and climate patterns, I'm afraid of how many more unicorns we're going to see in the future. Right? We saw a lot of things in the past couple of years that we've have never seen before. 
right? Uh, record drought on, in the Midwest uh, contributed to just a crazy barge market last fall in the middle of grain season, historic in 30 years of me being in the business. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, and that certainly goes for what we saw in the ocean freight markets, both the container and break bulk markets, uh, you know, ships with steel waiting a month and a half in the uh, Delaware uh, River at anchor to discharge uh, steel or you know, this extreme uh, waiting time for these container ships is not something we've ever seen. It's up to the container lines when it comes to the container, containerized business to, as I mentioned earlier, to diversify their, their port operations, right? This model of building bigger and bigger container ships take free 1992 when I got out of New York Maritime College and went to work for Neptune Orient Lines, which is now American President Lines. I was working doing container stowage report in Newark. We were working 6,000 TEU ships at that point, approximately. And TEUs are 20 foot equivalent units. That means a, a ship a 6,000 TU ship means a ship that could carry 6,000 20-foot containers or a combination of 20-foot and 40-foot containers of this, you know, using that size. Now you, you have ships, you know, that are just massively larger than this, right? 20, 25,000 TU uh, container ships that are so much bigger. And when you loading and discharging these massive ships at these ports that have not grown in any significant way in the past uh, 20 years, you got what you got, which is massive congestion, more volume being shoved down the same pipeline that, and a pipeline that hasn't uh, expanded. So there was a ship that shows up carrying 6,000 TUs can be knocked out maybe in a day at a particular port. Now you're talking about a ship that needs uh, several days and more cranes and more space, right? Just a massive amount of space to lay out all these containers in the yard. And then those containers need to be loaded to trucks. And those containers need to be loaded to rail, you know, rail cars for unit trains to move out. And the infrastructure just hasn't kept up on the inland side, hasn't kept up with the size of these massive container ships going into these ports. So yeah, needs to be a rethinking there. So thanks for that. And a note to the listeners, we did an episode dedicated to the container shipping market with Peter Sand back in April 2022. Uh, and he actually, uh, you know, I certainly called the fact that this was a transient up and that we would expect things to turn to normal, even though at that time, I think, you know, it, it seemed like it would go on forever. So uh, <laughs> I would refer people to that episode 92. On the inland stuff, just in the interest of time, I guess there's one particular aspect I want to bring out. And that is really that we're sort of seeing the same pattern, which is rates are sort of gone from sky high to fizzle this year. And we're expecting sort of the harvest, we're recording this in, in mid-July, you know, so a couple of weeks behind, but we're expecting the harvest numbers to come out. And we're mm -hmm. expecting them to yields in North America to be pretty low. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk to that story a little? As the harvest uh, time approaches, we start getting in what we call grain season in the uh, U.S. inland uh, barge market. The barge market uh, covers the inland river system, Mississippi River, Ohio River, um, and other tributaries, Illinois River and Waterway, and so forth. During this time from August through November, what's 
what's called green season. It's typical for the spot barge market to to bump upwards um, and to to move up. Typically, a few bucks uh, per ton on uh, barge freight northbound. Northbound because the barge lines like to position their barges. If they need to, they'll put them up, move them empty. Northbound take advantage of southbound uh, grain and inflated rates during during that time. So this always has an effect on the northbound market, uh, which is what we're typically working in for import steel or metals and other commodities. Barge lines don't want their barges uh, stuck in St. Louis for three weeks waiting to unload rebar when they can have that uh, empty barge uh, up in up in uh, the upper miss in in Minnesota uh, loading grain out at a significant premium. So this is pretty typical. Last year, grain season 2022, we had a, a more robust export grain market with Russia and Ukraine both coming out of the European grain markets we were seeing more grain moving out to Europe, I believe, that contributed to a strong grain season last year. That coupled with this perfect storm of this historic drought in the Midwest where we saw river levels drop to uh, all-time lows and barges going aground at various points of the river system. So we saw really, I think it may not be too inflammatory to use the word, ludicrous market last year to the point where we booked a few barges uh, during that time at $90 a ton, nine zero dollars per short ton northbound up into Missouri at a market that would typically be in the maybe eight to nine dollars per short ton range for annual contracts. So, I mean, a tenfold increase during spot rates uh, last October. Things have come back down to earth. The barge market right now is uh, nowhere near as tight as it was during that drought. And, and the reason that that drought contributed to the market going up, if it's not obvious, right? If you can only load a barge to seven feet draft uh, on, instead of its typical nine foot, then you need a lot more barges to handle the same tonnage. And therefore, you're taking a lot more barges out of the market during that time, making them more scarce and therefore driving driving up the market. And that's what we were, that's what we were seeing during that time frame. Now, as you said, Paul, right, uh, we're, we're hearing that what's coming up in terms of grain season may not be as strong as Bartlands may, may hope for. We're seeing, we're seeing spot rates right now going into September, October, nothing that's as dramatic, anywhere near as dramatic as it was last year at this point. So, so we may be uh, on the edge right now of a grain season that may end up being fairly disappointing for the barge lines in terms of increased revenue during this time. So, there has been years where the bar where the grain season has been so depressed that spot rates during grain season actually have dropped below where annual contract rates were negotiated for the entire year back in in the early days of uh, the year, the end of the previous year. So while I don't think we're going to see that situation, I, it looks like we may be, may not, may be seeing a uh, less than lackluster um, grain season at this point for the, for the barge market. Yeah, and I, I just it kind of points to the volatility that you're coming, you know, we're dealing with lots of variables here, right? Drought, <laughs> flooding, crop yields, high low uh you know it's 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 certainly a lot of complexities to managing it we, i want to just get a few words from you on mercury but before we sort of wrap up the this same triumvirate of 
trends are affecting every aspect of the commodities market and i sort of i think about every episode that we've done it sort of in the end it sort of boils down to one or combination of the three of of deglobalization mm-hmm. energy transition and digitization that are you know that's creating all this volatility and uncertainty and so forth where from a macro picture do you think sort of the the industrial commodity freight world is sitting i guess especially you know you've got this pull from energy transition for more material, more raw material moving to build this incredible supply chain or, or infrastructure that we need to achieve the energy transition, but at the same time rapidly changing freight routes as the world sort of carves itself into blocks or blockitization, as Jeremy Shapiro called it on an episode of, or two ago. Can you just give us your sort of sense on that and the complexity now that is needing to be managed? I think it's an exciting time, right? We're we're seeing a a few unique factors here, right? The the end of a of a global pandemic, not ramping up uh, China, right? And then this en- energy transition and the need for more raw materials, copper, nickel, right? Other other battery metals and raw materials that feed into into this energy transition. So what we're seeing right now is is just a market in flux, right? It's everything is up in the air. It seems like a lot's up in the air and hasn't yet settled down, right? We're seeing higher interest rates, right? Uh, an attempt by the US Federal Reserve to cool inflation. It's There's a lot of moving parts right now. And companies that are adjusting and flexible and nimble are going to be the ones that are going to be able to take advantage of where new trade routes start to start to crop up. And it's going to be a challenge, right, for companies that are particularly the ones in asset-based companies, right, that have fixed facilities, right, that just cannot be as adaptive that, that are going to have a challenge, right, or that are not not paying attention and not adjusting quickly. But we have you know, additional factors of onshoring of production. I think I mentioned to you, Paul, when we were speaking the other day, we're, we're, we're actively bringing in materials now, construction materials and steel for new manufacturing plants in North America that uh, in semiconductor production and so forth, right? Things that we've never, never seen before at the same time that there's a lot of now attention. Finally, this, uh, the, the world is starting to realize, right? Uh, that uh, we can't do all of this without the necessary natural resources and raw materials to be mined and refined, right? And smelted and made into useful materials. It's not enough to just pull you know, raw ore out of the ground, but it actually has to be refined, right, at that point. And that's where things get to be far more challenging, right? These are not the cleanest operations. So we're seeing a world very much in transition in supply chains uh, and transportation infrastructure, right, all with a big question mark, uh, you know, hovering overhead. But including the technologies around even the the infrastructure itself, right? You know, ships. You know, are, are they going yeah. to be compatible with you know hydrogen, mm-hmm. biofuels, trains, electrification, long haul? Ro- I mean, it's it's just a very complex picture, isn't it? And and I, yeah, I, I guess the point being that as we sort of keep coming back to the the outcome is ultimately going to be volatility, especially when you layer in the environmental effects that are so profoundly affecting these markets, especially mm-hmm. the, at the more micro level, the inland level. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we take the shipping uh, ocean freight market, right? The ships right now, there's an enormous amount of discussion and 
energy rate being put into determining what the fuel of the future is going to be for ships. I think today, one of the container lines announced the new building of a new ammonia or hydrogen powered vessels, right? As they're looking at uh, alternative fuels, particularly to comply with what's coming in the European Union on uh, emissions uh, for ships, I think in 2024 coming up there. So it's there's going to be some driving factors in regulation that are going to have a, a pull on uh, on these markets in addition to this reshaping of global supply chains. I mean, throw Russia-Ukraine war into the mix too, right? And uh, and how that affected agriculture markets and ocean freight markets in the Black Sea and Mediterranean, right? It's easy to easy to come up with a number of just existential factors, right, that were just unthinkable, right, uh, 10 years ago, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Even at some point, what what flagged ships will be able to go where, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the the end result of some of the, the strands of deglobalization that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you've been very gracious with your time. Um, it'd be great to obviously just get a few words on Mercury and kind of what differentiates you and it from sort of the other options there are to to fixing your 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 cargo yeah. and uh, and products absolutely yeah so we described the mercury group as a we're a fiduciary for our clients right so use tend to use that financial phrase to describe us we're a non-asset based company right so we're we work for our clients. We don't pretend to be a ship owner. We don't pretend to be a barge line or a railroad. Our job as a fiduciary for our clients is managing their supply chain uh, to the best of our ability and to find uh, the right fit for their business, whether it be barge lines, trucking companies, railroads, ports, and stevedoring operations, ship owners. Uh, so, so we're never steering our clients towards our own assets, right? There's a lot of companies that are asset-based uh, logistics companies, of course, right? Their job is to is to drive business towards the assets that they've invested in and to make use of them. Our job is completely different, right? But really what differentiates us, we are strictly an advocate and therefore prosecuting our clients' uh, needs in the market entirely. So we take our we take our responsibility as a fiduciary very seriously and uh, therefore it keeps us in a, what I would like to say in a different league right compared to asset-based logistics companies or or companies that pretend to be a carrier and and uh, so forth but but we work on a transparent basis for our clients and that's what makes us different. Well, fantastic. Well, as you said at the start, it's been a long time coming. We've yeah. known each other for a, a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to have you back on in a year or two and, and we'll see where we're at yeah. and uh, see whether some of the predictions of volatility uh, play out. Absolutely. Yep. Looking forward to that, Paul. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have some more some more crazy topics to talk about uh, next time, too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.